I, I can't. Like, I, I literally can't accept it. The amount of pain, the amount of pain she must have experienced in that exact moment when she finally had this little girl, I can't fathom it. The timing is just so incredibly cruel. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was Larry Bloomstein speaking to NPR in 2017. His wife, Lauren, died in 2011 after giving birth to their daughter. The Bloomstein story is one of thousands of pregnancy-related tragedies in recent years. As many as 900 new moms die every year, and another 500,000 experience life-threatening postpartum complications, according to the CDC. And on today's episode, I'll talk to Katie Cozimano, a top researcher on maternal mortality, to understand why maternal mortality has emerged as a crisis and has continued to get worse. You can check the show notes for links to the NPR story, Katie's work, and some of the other articles and policy proposals we mention during today's episode. And if you have feedback on our show or suggestions on upcoming episodes, visit Apple Podcasts to leave a review tell us what you think. And now, here's Katie Cozumano. Welcome to Pulse Check. Thank you so much. One of the most unique names in health policy and doing some of the most important healthcare research, too. You are in D.C. for a summit on maternal mortality, specifically rural maternal mortality. So there are racial disparities. There are inequities between rural and urban. There are bigger structural problems that are being brought to bear. This is really a cross-section of so many different problems in U.S. healthcare. Why did it take us so long to realize this? The maternal death rate after pregnancy, it's been going up for 30 years? Correct. So why now? Why is this coming to light now? One of the reasons is data. We we simply haven't done the research in the U.S. setting since the 1990s looking at rural maternity care or looking at maternal morbidity and mortality. It, Things have been the the rates have been creeping up since that time, and I think there was not a lot of attention to that to that slow increase that was happening because it was happening under people's noses while they were paying attention to something else. Data themselves are rarely all that interesting. I mean, to people like me, they're very interesting, but to to most folks, they need to understand a context in which to put uh, you know these these horrible statistics and numbers, and so. When the media started to turn toward this, those stories captured the hearts and minds of, of folks that um, that now are, are taking action. And I'd, I'd bet you're referencing the NPR series about a year and a half ago, NPR and ProPublica uh, Lost Mothers, Correct. if I'm remembering correctly. Yes. And the New York Times has devoted coverage here, too. And it's interesting from from where I sit as a reporter to watch the, the cycle mm-hmm. of when an issue makes its way into major publications, lawmakers pick it up. We have a presidential election looming. Some presidential candidates have made this part of their platforms as well. In the past, we'll say two years, Mm -hmm. since this emerged as a front page issue, have we made significant progress? You mentioned data, for instance, and we did not have data before. Do we have the data now? We don't have the data now, but we have made progress. We have some more data than than we did before, and we have better systems and structures in place to collect information on these maternal deaths and to understand the patterns in these tragedies. Because telling the stories and bringing the attention to maternal deaths is the first step. And then the next step is is 
more systematically looking at those. So um, we had in 2018 the passage of the Preventing Maternal Deaths Act, which was a piece of federal legislation that passed with unanimous support in Congress. And you don't hear too frequently about pieces of legislation that pass with unanimous support in Congress uh, to strengthen the network of uh, maternal mortality review committees and to provide funding to support uh, state-level maternal mortality review committees. And these are, again, the committees that are looking at the data in states like Indiana, Minnesota, and so on. Correct. So, Katie, when we talk about deaths related to pregnancy, related to maternal outcomes, what are the causes of these deaths? Are these pregnancy complications? Are these things that happen along the way of just being in a hospital and and infections that might result, something else? So the most recent data that came out from the CDC showed that about, so maternal mortality is comprised of um, pregnancy-related causes. Then they can happen anytime during pregnancy or up to a year after giving birth. And we know that about a third of those deaths occur in the time of pregnancy, about a third occur around the time of delivery, and then a third of those deaths occur in the postpartum period. What we know about causes comes from maternal mortality review committees. And because that work is very is variable across states, we don't always have consistent data. We do know that about 66% of those deaths are preventable and that a portion are due to clinical causes and a portion are due to more structural determinants and or social determinants of health that are broader than just medical care causes. And those are risks of uh, increasing risks of uh, intimate partner violence, for example, for folks who are pregnant. That's a time period when you have heightened uh, risk for folks and a, a range of other factors. So there are some things that can be done in a clinical setting to screen for those social determinants of maternal death as well. Even partner violence, that's something that can be screened for. Yes. How yes. does that get screened for? Uh, there are screen. There are v- validated screening tools that can be used uh, and are recommended to be used during pregnancy. Also, you know, is there a firearm in the house? Is another screener question that can be used. Um, looking at a range of different factors that may as- that may contribute to risk, both clinical and non-clinical risk of maternal death. Is one factor the increasing? average age of, of mothers in the United States. Uh, my understanding is, and this is largely a public health triumph, but the average age has gone up as teen pregnancy has gone down. But older moms, more complications? That's true. And that's a part of the story. But it is it is dwarfed in comparison to some of the other broad factors. Often we look at some of the, you know, the, the, the clinical risks and, and, um, and, and that alone is not uh, explaining the the increase that we're seeing in maternal morbidity and mortality in this country. The role of hospitals here and, and hospitals that may be found maternity care to be expensive, so pulled back and invested in cardiac care or orthopedics. Are the incentives right for hospitals to do this kind of work? The incentives are wrong for hospitals <laughs> to do this kind of work, unfortunately. And I think I'm glad that you brought it brought up the financing and and um, the financial incentives here. Maternity care is frequently uh, reimbursed as a bundle. And there's one payment that's made to the clinician for pregnancy, uh, pregnancy-related care, labor and delivery, and postpartum care. And that's one big 
bundle payment. Yes. Just to underline the point, most healthcare in America is fee-for-service. Correct. Bundled care is where there, there are different providers being pushed together, in this case, the physician and the hospital. Well, this is actually the um, payments for all the different services that are provided by the, by the physician or clinician is one bundle. And the second bundle is the facility fee that goes to the facility where the baby is born. And um, those are, are shaped by... Um, the delivery mode, whether it's a vaginal or cesarean birth, and it's also shaped by the level of, of complexity. However, most of the services are provided. So if you think about the clinician bundle, most of the services are provided by the time you delivered your baby. And so the incentives to provide postpartum care financially are really not there. So chasing down someone who's already having a hard time coming back postpartum, again, there's just not money in the system anymore. Um, for facilities, the facility reimbursement fee for vaginal birth is much less than for a cesarean birth, which is higher intensity and requires more resources. But that creates a financial incentive for greater operative birth or for more procedure utilization. And and so there are these these incentives that are set up incent over uh, use of services in an area that is traditionally under reimbursed and for which the payer mix is dominated by Medicaid, which pays less than private payers. It's a complex picture, but it all comes when it comes right down to it. In the obstetric service lines of a hospital, a hospital a hosp, the hospital C-suite, the administrative folks in a hospital, they think of obstetrics as a loss leader. It frequently is. And that makes it really hard to invest scarce resources in a service line that's losing money. And it also creates a disincentive for um, perinatal care quality improvement. If you improve maternity care quality, usually it means you're doing less stuff and it means you're getting paid less money. So it's a, it's a very uh, vicious cycle between reimbursement and financing and maternal health outcomes. The patients who get caught in the rural communities especially, I've been wondering about this for, for years. I was out in Minnesota talking to Mayo Clinic leaders about their decision to pull back services from towns like Albert Lee and others, where in their, in their defense, their argument was these small hospitals are barely seeing any, any births. There might be only a couple every week, and that's not safe. You, you need to have teams that are doing procedures all the time to stay sharp. It, it didn't financially validate keeping these facilities open. But I wonder, Katie, where does that leave the patient who might be two hours away from the big hospital? Like, what is safer, ultimately? Mm. The facility that's only doing a couple births or the facility that's hours away and when the baby comes or, or you need that ongoing care, it's, it's that much harder to get to your doctor. Yes, that's such a good question. And it's hard to give a precise answer because it depends very much on local context. And I, I will say, as, as, as we've conducted research on rural maternity care and hospital obstetric unit closures or hospital closures, when you talk with rural hospital CEOs about the decision to stop doing obstetric services, for most of them, it's a heart-wrenching decision. They, they really don't want to do that. They value birth in their community. But sometimes it uh, comes down to either um, staffing, they're not able to maintain the staff to be able to handle a birth, um, finances, or clinical concerns about quality of clinical care and clinical competency. And I think that of those, 
two of those reasons, I think, are probably not sufficient to um, close an obstetric unit, knowing what we know about the outcomes of that. And that is, if it's just about finances, there needs to be a way to finance access. If it's just about workforce, there needs to be a way to get the get the uh, people that want to do that work to those communities. Those are theoretically solvable with enough money behind them. But the issue of clinical care and and the quality of clinical care, if you have your clinical nurse leadership saying, we don't feel safe taking care of moms in this community, that's a real concern. And in that may make it a wise choice to stop doing services in that facility. But you can't do that without a good plan about what's going to happen with those folks in that community, the patients that are caught in between here, especially the patients that are low income. The And from our own data, we know that rural, uh, rural patients with uh, hot, more complicated pregnancies are less likely to travel to an appropriate facility to give birth if they are low income or if they are teen mothers or, interestingly, if they are non-Hispanic black compared with other racial groups. I want to shift a bit from the problem to the political efforts or the policy leadership that's trying to fix it. You spoke on a panel here in, in D.C. today at this event around rural maternal mortality. It was you Kellyanne Conway, CMS Administrator Seema Verma, all the heavy hitters on (laughs) on these issues. What is the Trump administration's emerging plan here around rural maternal mortality? I think uh, some of those other folks that that spoke alongside me are probably better equipped than I to answer that. I know, but I can't get them in front of a microphone. (laughs) I got you. So uh, what I heard from them today is that there is a real focus on rural health and the health of rural communities and that they see this challenge at the intersection of the opioid crisis and other crises that economic crises that hit rural communities harder than urban areas and that it's very important politically and um, just given the focus of this administration to ground the solutions in the needs of rural communities. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, This is a place where there is a lot of bipartisan support and interest in making things better. Everyone wants to see moms and babies do well. And and there are bipartisan paths forward to do so. So the partisanship here is fascinating to me because Administrator Verma, Seema Verma, was out this week arguing against Medicare for all mm-hmm. and and the idea that it's going to cause financial problems for Medicare. But really, this administration has taken a stand that coverage expansion in many forms is just not feasible. Mm-hmm. The administration is also calling for the Affordable Care Act and its Medicaid expansion to be struck down. How does that reconcile with this this goal of helping rural moms? Would the one cancel out any other effort? I don't see those as being internally consistent. I I do think that some of the um, stated policy positions, uh, whether it's around uh, pulling back on the Medicaid expansion provision that was made available through the Affordable Care Act, clearly we have have data that shows that 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 financially helps rural hospitals. That said, uh, if we want to think creatively about another path that doesn't use the already flawed systems that are in place, um, I would be I would be open to that. I don't see other alternatives being proposed. You're, that you're would making fill a that subtle gap. you're making a subtle allusion to Medicare for all. I think. Uh, well, perhaps I I, I wasn't actually directly um, alluding to that, but I think that that's it's an important part of the conversation. Certainly, in countries that have a, a Medicare for all type of policy approach, there there are better maternal health outcomes. And we can't draw that line directly, but I think the policy environment makes a huge difference for the choices that are available to 
to mothers and to uh, the providers and health systems that care for them. And you've written quite a bit about the importance of access, just access to care and, and what that can bring. Stepping back from the administration, and you've made the point this is not partisan, Many Democrats are are campaigning on this in the presidential election, mm-hmm. or at least have brought it up. Kamala Harris, uh, senator from California, Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts, have made this an issue. Uh, in Congress, Representative Lauren Underwood, who, who was on this podcast last year, former nurse, and Representative Alma Adams has uh, started a black maternal health caucus in, in the states. Um, uh, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam is now pushing this as a priority, black maternal health for, for new mothers. Looking across the spectrum, which politician has it most right? Oh, wow. That is a great question. I think one of the challenges in parsing out the difference between rhetoric and action here when we hear the policy ideas coming forth is the the clarity and the conviction to actually move forward and take action on this beyond just – Clearly, there's like an ethical urgency to do something, to say something. And I think that's part of what motivated the bipartisan passage of the Preventing Maternal Deaths Act. Uh, No one wants to be against the Saving New Mothers legislation. But that legislation stopped short of requiring some of the things, some of the um, deep systemic changes, some changes, some some, uh, discomfort in addressing what got us here in the first place, whether that's, you know, really calling out and addressing structural racism. And I think Kamala Harris's proposed uh, Maternal Care Act starts to do that by requiring implicit bias training. And so I appreciate her elevating that and bringing that forward. Um, The payment disincentives are something that has been highlighted by Elizabeth Warren in her plan moving forward. So there are pieces of this that are coming up from different candidates and what they're what they're highlighting. I'm glad that folks want to pay attention to this. I don't want it to be something that people that moves off of the political uh, agenda because of lip service or because of something that's kind of a surface level. We really need to to deal with the deep issues of data, of resources, and of representation in order to move forward on this topic. You're one of the nation's leading researchers here. Have any of these politicians talked to you? I have had a chance to talk with a couple of uh, folks that are working in, in this space, Some, um, including both sitting politicians and uh, folks that are campaigning. I've spent years working with uh, the offices of some uh, policymakers, sometimes you know more visibly and sometimes less so. And I really welcome that opportunity. It makes my research better when I know the questions that policymakers are asking. And it helps bring the voices of women and especially folks in communities that are most deeply affected by these policies. But folks that are often not at those tables when the decisions are being made, it helps bring their voices uh, into those discussions. Can you share any more specifics on who you've talked to? (laughs) I think I probably shouldn't. (laughs) But they've been good conversations. Yes, I'll have to to depress you after the podcast. (laughs) I I want to understand how you got into this work. And I read some of your pieces where you've talked about your family background and that there was a great aunt Mm -hmm. who who died after after pregnancy. But was there a moment in your research career 15 years ago, 20 years ago, where you said, this is what I'm going to do with my professional life? Yes, I think there were two moments. I was once upon a time, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Mozambique. And in Mozambique, I taught... I taught eighth grade English and um, I taught in a in a school that was seventh to ninth grade 
uh, Mozambican children. And in my seventh grade classes, uh, or in the, in the seventh grade classes before they came to me in eighth grade, there was about half boys and half girls. By ninth grade, it was 90% boys and 10% girls. We lost the some of the brightest female students because of some of sexual and reproductive health issues, uh, gender inequalities that were societal. And, and just seeing that, seeing that loss right in front of me, the loss of the potential really motivated me to address maternal health issues and uh, sexual and reproductive health issues. And then I had the interest the second time that, that, that really solidified for me. That was a solidifying moment in an international context. I came home to Minnesota and I was a junior high school teacher there. And I taught English as a second language to seventh to ninth grade kids. And I saw many of the same issues affecting my student population in Minnesota as I saw in Mozambique. Not exactly the same issues. It wasn't the HIV AIDS epidemic, but it was sexual and reproductive health issues. It was, it was unintended pregnancies. It was, uh, again, broader social structure issues that, was, that were not supporting women and girls. And disproportionately, people of color that were suffering, lower income folks, people from rural areas. At that time, I knew I couldn't just sit in front of classrooms and watch our girls' potential decline, disappear, go away. And that was when I decided to work on policy and on research to try to understand those patterns and correct them. You have two children. Knowing what you do about maternal mortality, how did that affect your decisions around approaching hospital care? Wow, that's a great question. I my my first child was born uh, in 2008 at a hospital in Massachusetts in a very uh, high volume facility that takes care of high risk patients and that performs miracles every day. And as a first time mom with a very low risk pregnancy, I probably had no business being there. I was using resources that didn't need to be there for me, and they were you know, everyone was at the ready to handle the largest emergency. Um, it meant that at the time that that hospital had the highest cesarean rate in all of Massachusetts, I have subsequently found out. And there was a lot of pressure to move me through the unit. It was a time before we knew about some of the risks of uh, of uh, early elective deliveries, for example, and other types of, of over-intervention. But my experience was certainly something that we now term the cascade of interventions, um, where one thing starts happening and because you, you know, start augmenting labor, it starts going faster, and then you get overwhelmed with pain, and then you have an epidural, and then baby's not doing well, and so then you need to go to a cesarean. And so there was just a lot of things that was ha- that were happening. And I was, I was a, a, you know, a student at the time, but I was a PhD student in health policy. I knew more about this than almost anyone. And it was still, it was happening to me. Um, and I, the, the second time I gave birth, I, I chose something very different. I, I had uh, midwife-led care in a community hospital. And that birth was, uh, it was just 
so wonderful to be able to have the space to birth in a um, with a clinician that was matched to my level of risk and to have the opportunity to uh, make make more choices about about that um, that childbirth and and I uh, left the hospital pretty quickly thereafter and walked home after giving birth to my second child I did not have an epidural I um, and that, that was, and both of them were good and good learning experiences but in my own path I have also made choices uh, based on evidence that I have uh, understood and and I've I've really seen the value and benefit of that is that a one-off using a midwife? I mean, is that is that your experience and should not be extrapolated? Or should there be more reliance on midwives in, in the U.S. healthcare system? There should be more reliance on midwives in the U.S. healthcare system. And we have research that supports that. Uh, right now, about... Uh, just around 10% of all births are are supported or um, attended by midwives. And, um, you know, the evidence indicates that for low-risk women, um, ev- outcomes are similar to or potentially better for midwife-attended births compared with physician-attended births. And um, we've got sort of a... A misalignment of the risk structure of the providers um, versus patients in maternity care, where patients are predominantly like 70 percent of patients are low risk. The broadest proportion of births are, are attended by physicians and most of them are obstetricians. Obstetricians are trained surgeons. It's a surgical subspecialty. Most people that give birth aren't intending to have surgery and won't need it. But if you it's no wonder that we have an overuse of cesarean deliveries when we pay more for them. And the most of the people that we have attending births are trained to provide that type of service. And this is not blaming obstetricians at all who are put in the position of having to you know, make clinical decisions. I don't do that. So I have a lot of respect for, for their decision-making authority and their clinical um, discretion. A- and I know that it's been said when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, and obstetricians in their training and in their payment structures that they're subject to and are taught how to manage a high-risk birth. And so births are managed in that context. Midwives are trained very differently around physiologic childbirth, and that perspective is helpful. I've even heard of uh, OBGYN residents training with midwives to um, learn about how to provide low-risk healthcare services in an evidence-based way. Having followed your work and and having read some of the stories or listened to the NPR reports in recent years, I I am more worried about pregnancy and the risks thereof than I I think I ever would have been. And some of that is I am of the age where my wife and I are talking about maybe we'll have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our privileged circle, we know we know women who one woman suffered a stroke after giving birth, two others suffered life threatening complications, and this is in Washington D.C. in the richest country in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. How much should the average person worry about pregnancy? I think that there has been an overemphasis on population risk for maternity care. And I think that that um, it's important to guard against these the rare risks that happen. I think part of the reason that folks know people that have had um, pregnancy-related complications is both because the rates are too high and because birth happens a lot. A lot of people have babies. There are 4 million of them a year. So, so even a very low-frequency event is something that you're going to have 
several, quite a lot of cases of. And especially when those adverse outcomes are preventable, it's that's a tragedy that should be avoided. That said, most births are low risk and they are safe. And we need to create a system that supports the majority of people whose births are low risk and allows them access to the evidence-based care and supports that we know are best for low risk pregnancies. That said, low risk pregnancies are low risk until they're high risk, right? So, so we need to have both a system that understands and supports the natural physiologic childbearing. I hate even using the word patients because people who are pregnant are not sick. They're just pregnant. And, um, and, and, and yet that does confer risk with it. And so, but I, I don't think you should be afraid. Please don't be afraid. Uh, there, there, um, birth is such a wonderful and beautiful thing. And it's something that I hope that we can pivot our healthcare delivery system to amplify the empowerment of birth and the beauty of birth and allow that to be and allow that to lead as opposed to always guarding against every potential thing that could go wrong. I think we'll leave it at that. Katie Kazimano, thank you so much for joining Politico Pulse Check. Thank you for having me. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Katie Kazimano from the University of Minnesota and Craig Polofsky and Francis Yang from Kaiser Family Foundation for making space for the interview. And of course, Jenny Ament for producing the show. You can find Politico Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for Politico Pulse Check. You can find me at ddiamond at politico.com with suggestions by email. And you can find a new episode of Politico Pulse Check in your podcast player next week. Thanks for listening.